Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we're talking about Fernando Morales' new reckoning with the recent history of the Vatican, the two popes. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how the two popes might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how the two popes might help us understand the lectionary passages for the second Sunday in Epiphany on January 19th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, Adam, this is one of those movies that feels so ripped from recent headlines that it's hard to separate out the craft of the filmmaking from the true history of the events. In early 2013, then-Pope Benedict announced that he would quite unexpectedly resign from office, the first resignation of a living pope in hundreds of years. Benedict was known as something of a traditionalist, easily contrastable with his more progressive successor, Argentinian Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, now Pope Francis. But in The Two Popes, Brazilian director Fernando Morales tries to tell the true story of the unusual meeting of these two men, like a year before Benedict's announcement, which finds them arguing about their vision for the church and also wrestling in some ways with their own callings into ministry. Adam, you and I are both clergy, but we're working in a couple of mainline Presbyterian churches, which is a long way from having one-on-one sit-downs in the Sistine Chapel. This movie purports to be about Catholics, and we are definitely not. But I still wonder whether this grabbed you anyway and how it led you. How is the two popes bouncing around in your theological imagination? I was quite captivated by this movie. Um, I think in part because the two leads, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, are popey, so to speak. They, I mean, I think if you're a pope, you have to command some measure of attention. You have to have some charisma. And they both do and they you get the sense that they are popes and I think the outfits go a long way <laughs> the outfits i mean talking in the sistine chapel for long periods of time also goes a long way <laughs> but i i think this movie works best when it's those two having a conversation with them right with themselves and having conversations of substance now and it should be I, said like this movie spends a lot of time doing precisely that i mean it is a lot of anthony hopkins and jonathan price in a room talking which no complaints here but it is this is not necessarily a kind of conventionally narratively structured film it is on the border of being kind of my dinner with the pope instead of instead of kind of crafted unfolding story arc right and and the story arc is is really about the two of them coming to terms with what it means to be a leader, what it means to be in ministry, 
how do they make decisions? Um, it, it, and it explores those things, and I think in some fascinating ways. I I think part of the reason I really like this is that number one, it it's sort of it's its own buddy comedy about God and ministry, right? Like sure. you have you have the contrasting the two contrasting characters. You have Benedict the traditionalist, and you have Francis the progressive. And you know how are they going to get? You know how is this odd couple going to get along? And in some ways, you know from the very beginning that one's not going to be the enemy and one's not going to be the hero. In some ways, they're going to have what the other needs in order to sort of fully understand their own identities. And that I actually quite like. I, I thought that when it's Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price having those conversations, um, they can sell it in a way that I found quite meaningful. The uh, that, that odd couple pairing, though, I think really, for me, finds its true depth, not in the Catholic side of things, not that they're discussing what it means to be Pope or what it means to be a Cardinal or what it means to make these hard decisions. But really when they're having conversations about what does like purpose look like, especially with respect to ministry. And, and in that way, I felt, um, I felt uh, a kinship with them. Yeah. Um, just as someone who has himself wrestled with a call and tried to figure out what ministry looks like. And then in some ways, the fact that these two people are, you know, that they are popes and, uh, raises the stakes and that they are leaders of a um of a church with a 1.2 billion people um it you know that raises the stakes of everything and then later when you hear about francis's story about living in under a sort of military junta and how that affected the way that he did ministry for good and for ill um i, I don't relate to those things but when these men start talking about whether or not they hear god that I was like, that's a real question. I, I feel that question, and and in that way, I felt I felt a deep kinship with both of them as um, as their humanity began to sort of sift out past the robes, past the the red hat and the and the uh, white hat, past the black robe and the white robe. Right, the the contrast of this movie um, slowly drift together, and in, in those moments, I found it quite compelling. What about you? How did it how did it feel to you as you watch it? I agree with everything you've said. I, I, I really appreciated the way in which this film. Um, I mean, it is it, as it inevitably has to be a sort of uh, unmasking or a sort of demystifying of the, the the allure of the papacy and of the Vatican. It starts out with the, the long ritual of the conclave of cardinals that elects Benedict and you have Bergoglio there is sort of the the the, the second run the, the second place contender uh, and even in that process you start to get a sense of this is what this kind of majestic magical holy thing looks like in the background and I think there's something deeply relatable about that for any of us who labor in the church about the sort of the, the front of house and the back of house sense of, 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 <laughs> right. of, of what this what, what this holy place is and what it can also be um, behind closed doors. Um, spoiler alert, they're all humans, right? And, and, and as are any of us in ministry. And 
the the deeply human stuff comes out and then there's this also sort of pleasure in watching the human side of these popes still nonetheless be deeply rooted in um in faithful wrestling with god and when faithful wrestling with their own sense of calling and purpose um it it could be so much more disgustingly human than it is right it is right. what what you see is 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 a couple of men that that strike me as as, as being fundamentally sympathetic in this film in a way that is that is that is inspiring to be honest yeah. and, and i say that as someone who 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 wrestles in principle with decisions that both of their administrations have made in real life but in this film they seem like oh this is these are people that i i would enjoy being in collegial ministry with and whose leadership i would would um would want to covet i i struggled a bit with some of the filmmaking decisions here mm -hmm. um, Fernando Morales was as a um, most known to me as the director of this just unbelievable film from the early two thousands called City of God. Um, about oh, that that movie is amazing. Uh, which is you know a kind of a, a, a street level view of poverty in Rio, um, and 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 it's incredibly kinetic and brightly colored, and his camera whips through those streets in these really incredibly energetic ways. And you yeah, see the style some, of that movie is crazy. It's wild. It's so and you good. see some of that energy show up here in the first 20 minutes or so when they're trying to set uh, Bergoglio's coming out of Buenos Aires and about and his street-level ministry in Argentina. And then you take Morales to the Vatican and to Italy and to these kind of the, the Pope's summer palace where a lot of these conversations take place. And I can feel him bursting up against the fences of what those those places can be for him cinematographically there's just less to do in some ways the point of those sequences is to point a camera at anthony hopkins and jonathan price and let them go and 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 i, I kind of wish that he had been more able to just do that mm -hmm. um the film makes some interesting decisions in that um, we have to learn a lot more about Jonathan Price's history and his ministry, and it does that through some extended flashback sequences uh, that, that relocate the narrative energy back to Bergoglio's past. They cast a different actor. It spends a lot of time uh, in Argentina during the junta, and, and part of me feels like Morales just wanted something to do, and, and so he wanted to go and have something that he could shoot in a kind of conventional, more energetic way. And I kind of wanted Jonathan Price to tell me that whole story in a monologue where the camera doesn't move. And and so there was some tension there for me just, mm -hmm. in, how, just in how yeah. this is delivered. Um, I, I was ready for this literally just to be kind of my dinner with the papacy. Let's just let these two masterclass actors tell their stories. Um, and I, I so I felt a little bit disjointed by it yeah and i think um there's a there's a little bit of a lack of balance there too which is you don't really get the flashback of benedict either he doesn't he doesn't have a conventional story and he and he says as much in the movie he, he says you know i've always been sure of god's voice i know i i've always heard it and he's come to the end of his of his papacy and he stopped hearing it and the film seems to suggest that that's one of the major reasons that he's resigning. And 
And I think one of these sort of central culturally Catholic questions of the last 25 years is why did Benedict resign? <laughs> um, because it is, it's hard from where I sit as a Protestant to fully comprehend how radical that is. I actually think the, the movie does a good job where Jonathan, when Jonathan Price as Francis pleads with him not to resign for all of these reasons that have nothing to do with like him as a human being, but has everything to do with the role of the papacy and how it operates in the Catholic church. And um, so I wasn't aware that it was how big a decision this was, but the movie does a good job of sort of suggesting how, how radical this is and trying to give some spin on that. It should be said that uh, much of these conversations are made up and and it's hard, like, it's not as if Francis and uh, and Benedict have had um, on the record conversations about what it is they've talked about, when they've met, what their relationship has been like in the past. It's mostly conjecture, which is, I think, one of the most important Catholic pastimes of the last 150 years, <laughs> which is like conjecture about what's happening in the Vatican, right? You can have a long storied history as a, as a Catholic reporter by just reporting on decisions in the Vatican. But um, at the end of the day, what I, what I really appreciated about the stories is that you have someone who's having a sort of crisis of faith himself in Benedict, and you have someone who's had a crisis of faith in the past. And that crisis of faith has, has fully colored everything that he does since. And now they're coming to terms with them. I think, um, I think this, this, the center of gravity for me in the movie is are these moments of confession that they give to each other. Yeah. And so I, you know, as you watched those two moments, theologically, did it did it suggest any new sort of wrinkle to confession to you? Well, let me, let me circle back to that. I was thinking about those moments of confession in terms of why Francis gets this elongated backstory that Benedict doesn't get. And I think it's so they can set up those moments of confession because the movie has to wrestle with the complicated public personas of both of those popes. Well, yeah. Bene so Benedict's papacy, you know, he, he doesn't... He, he is encumbered by being kind of labeled as uh, um, an fuddy-duddy conservative traditionalist and then as his papacy goes on he gets more and more bogged down by the legacy of um priest sexual abuse that the vatican doesn't properly deal with and it's not certainly doesn't come into existence under his leadership but it is not properly kind of brought to light and adjudicated and so and i think the film doesn't need to tell us that much about that because right. there's so much burden already in the public imagination on Benedict's legacy. Whereas Francis, while certainly not being perfect and in, in, in the public light, has certainly built up a considerably stronger public opinion, um, at least from my perspective, outside the Catholic Church. That, that I think the movie has to work a little over time to make sure that we get both of these men in a position where confession and mercy are important and needed. Um, because otherwise the, there's, you would get kind of holier than now Francis and failed miserable Benedict. And it wouldn't have the, there wouldn't be the equal standing 
you wouldn't get to. They do, which, 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 and, and, and maybe I'm just being uber-reformed about it, but you wouldn't sufficiently get to both of these men have sinned and fallen short in the eyes of God. Yeah, civil use just says peccator, right? Like, there's no... Right. Like, if... Yeah, you can't, you can't have, like... It needs balance. Yeah. It needs balance of the movie, so... But how do you how did you sense the confession there? I mean, I, I found it, I found it deeply moving. I, I did too. I, I certainly found, and and maybe this is just because I still kind of wrestle and am unsettled with Benedict's legacy, and so the 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 real story of this still weighs on me. But the I, I found Benedict's willingness to offer Francis mercy and that space of confession really beautiful and sacred. And I found Francis's ability to offer the same to Benedict really difficult. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because I had this like, uh, and and I I, I, I felt the weight of so many victims whose Mm -hmm. voices were not adequately getting, getting heard in that moment. And I wasn't sure that I was ready, even as someone who was not part of that church to offer him absolution. Then that, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, just to be totally honest, I, I had a harder time and I, and, and I, I want it to work really well for me because I, I think that there is something really critically theologically beautiful about that moment. But I, I think for reasons that are in some ways kind of extra textual, I wasn't ready for it. I think for me, that's what makes it so radical. Yeah. Yeah, in some ways, right? Because I, it's one of the one of the deeply theological questions that I don't have answers for, which is that this that perhaps grace is the most radical thing about the gospel, and that people give it to each other and absolve each other on as a reflection of how God has absolved people mm-hmm. is um, is not just radical, it's offensive. And trying to sort of wrestle with those two ideas. And, and there are moments in the movie, actually, I think where, where Francis will say, yeah, God has forgiven them, but these victims have not been made whole. Like you can't, you can't forget them on your way to absolution. And I think that that's right. I think the movie needed that that balance, that 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 sort of check on sort of easy grace or something like that. But um, yeah, I'm just I'm 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 troubled by grace, mm-hmm. like deeply troubled by it. Um, yeah, I think you probably should be. And the it may be the most radically distinct thing from our feelings and intuitions that God continues to press into the world. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that except to affirm it. And I think this movie affirms it. And that's why I I thought it, it did a good job. I mean, even in that moment of absolution, Francis is giving Benedict a moment of, of grace and he's visibly angry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Does this movie make you feel different about the real life Pope's Benedict or Francis? No, I don't think that I don't I don't actually think it's a clear reflection of either. Um, from what I know about both of them, you know, Ratzinger is smarter than the person that was portrayed by Anthony Hopkins. 
um, there's a, there's a, he's a man of true intellect and, and a keen theologian. Like he's, he's no joke. And, um, and Francis is more political than he's given, um, you know, than, than the portrayal that Jonathan Price gives him. Like he is more strategic. You, you get the sense that in this moment, like this, he's sort of pressed into service and, there's a there's Plato is even invoked that the person most fit for leadership is the one who doesn't want to be a leader. Right. Um, but I don't think I actually believe that. Um, I think that they're like recognizing your calling and being honest about what you're supposed to be doing as a leader is actually a really important part of leadership. Um, and you get the sense that like Imbroglio is like is pressed into this by these these outside forces and you know and in real life he came in and like in his like earliest conclave speech <laughs> has like a six-point plan about what he's going to do with the papacy right <laughs> you know like you don't have the six-point plan unless you are aware that you are going to ultimately be elected into the as a pope yeah. um so i i don't think it but it doesn't make any difference to me because i don't think it's i don't think it's a story based in reality. It's a story about that I think is faith filled about ministry. And, you know, if it were two ministers having this conversation, again, the stakes would be lower, but the, but the ideas would still be relevant. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. What about, I mean, what about you? I'm working really hard to not let it color my impressions of actual Benedict and Francis. Uh, but I, I think this movie does play into some uh, some ideas about those popes that have had quite a bit of cultural traction, and I think it's really interesting that the the Catholic Church and/or kind of the world that watches the Catholic Church has glommed on to these narratives. One of Benedict as kind of the 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 um, the the too intellectual and too traditional. Uh, Pope who, who who just couldn't quite manage his way through a time of and, and kind of hear the voices on the ground that needed to be heard. On the other hand, Francis, kind of the the man of the streets, uh, and <clears throat> the the and the the reluctant, humble, um, and, and kind of authentic, genuine man of heart. Uh, it's those those images may not be entirely fair to either of them. They are certainly played with here and, and, and swum around in, in this film. But I find it very interesting that the church kind of needed to call those, um, those tropes into being at this time in its life to kind of wrestle with, uh, who it is and what, what it's trying to do. I, I will say that in some ways, my favorite parts of this movie are, not the big moments of theological wrestling and certainly not some of the backstory work. My favorite parts of this movie are like the, 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 the kind of silly moments. Yeah. It's actually quite funny at times. Yeah. Uh, that we get, um, you know, Benedict is uh, a pianist. And so he is playing music for Francis and they are having, you know, they're, they're having a glass of wine back behind the scenes somewhere at night and chatting and he is showing off his musical side and he, um, and then on the other hand, Francis is a dancer and in this kind of, uh, 
beautifully kind of tense and also playful moment at the close towards the close of the film Francis pulls Benedict in kind of almost in a public moment to to ask him to to dance and to teach him a tango step which is just this beautifully lovely thing and then my absolute favorite beat in this whole film is the very 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 end when the two of them are after the transition of power and after Benedict has gone off to live his kind of reclusive life and Francis has come back in but now we have the the 2014 World Cup final between Argentina and Germany and the two men are sitting on a couch together watching the game and drinking a beer and the the, the way that that cuts through the closing credits is actually my was my favorite bit of all of this uh, I, I I I agree I think those those moments have they give a sense of friendship yeah. which is if you're gonna have a buddy movie you have to make them buddies right like they have to they actually have to at some point realize that the other person is a human being yeah. and there is this lovely little moment where where I even forget what Francis says but it's it's something fairly insignificant and uh and Benedict goes, oh, yeah, huh, me too. And you get the sense like, oh, yeah, that's how friendships are made. Yeah. Right. Well, like there's that like little moment of like recognizing that the other person likes something that you do or has experienced something you have. And you sort of sit there and you go, oh, yeah, this isn't this isn't my enemy. This is someone else who shares a lot in common with me. And it, and it, and it bookends with this moment when Benedict says that he is going to resign and Francis starts trying to talk him out of it because Francis, among other things, cannot possibly fathom a world in which there are two living popes because the church, what, there's the crisis of authority there, right? Who, who gets to speak? Is Benedict going to be, as we have all thought about this in, minist- in transitions in ministry in Presbyterian churches, like, how is Benedict going to kind of muzzle himself so that the new leader can succeed? But of course, the the flip side of that is this realization that being Pope by definition has got to be like the loneliest gig in existence because there is so little precedent for there being anybody else living in the world, period, who has (laughs) ever had your job. Like the whole point of the thing is that nobody else living has done that but you. And the, the, the gift at the end of this, that no, yeah. actually, they, they have someone to share this thing with. And, and, and they get to not be totally alone in, in, in wading their way through the burden of that job. I found just very beautiful. Yeah, I do. I, that's, that's lovely. I really like that. Here's my final question before we move on to the scripture. Uh, when you see all of the 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 liturgies and the the pageantry that goes along with all of this how much of it do you do you sort of long for and from your protestant wing of the world how much of it do you like kind of shudder at mm, like around the the conclave and the election of popes i mean just all of it right like you like to be a pope you you just have to constantly be involved in ritual um i I have my 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 relationship with seeing that is that it's a beautiful place to visit but i'm pretty sure i don't want to live there right okay yeah uh i I don't have i mean we we have a certain amount of high liturgy in 
in, in my congregation, there's a broad spectrum within the Presbyterian church. I think there's a degree to which it's what it shows is an intentionality that is really important and can be really beautiful. But there's a flip side of that that gets, that gets too far for me and, um, kind of makes everything feel a little bit more, um, boxed in than I feel like is, is, is real and honest. What about you? Uh, I am deeply attracted to it and aware that I could never do it. (laughs) It takes a surprising amount of skill to pull that off. Well, and not only pull it off, I would I, I would feel hemmed in in a way that would be very bad for me. Yeah. Um, but to me, it like I'm I am interested in like the Prada shoes, like where did those come from, and like and all of the rings and all of the stuff right. and the conclave. Like that sounds like a really fascinating. Like all of it is just it's attractive in its foreignness right it is it's exotic to me and and that pull is kind of interesting but i realized like i would i i couldn't be me it's a little bit like when you remember jiro dreams of sushi like watching that movie and watching this person like devote their life to cooking 12 dishes forever right and being like wow i really admire that and realizing i could never do that yeah yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if if you offered me a a seat at the conclave of cardinals to elect the next pope, like I would take that in a heartbeat. Like sheer oh, curiosity, yes. sheer curiosity, right? And the and the allure of getting behind locked doors, like in a heartbeat. Yes, totally. I would totally. love it. And and if but if all of a sudden I were a cardinal and I was part of that process, I think minimally the second time through I would be bristling. And like just revolting underneath because it felt it would feel so odd and and yeah. inadequate to what was really happening. Right, so. right. I think that's right. All right, let's move on. Before we do, we want to say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. There's some year-end lists up that I love. I love the year-end list where they're like the ten most read articles, and because it's always such an interesting smattering of things that have happened throughout the year. And so I direct your attention, go and read some of those. Those are pretty cool. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're going to look broadly at the second Sunday in Epiphany for year A. We've got a wonderful oracle from Isaiah, Psalm 40, uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and the calling of the disciples in John's Gospel. Adam, as you look at these passages, what stands out to you? Well, I mean, the call narrative in John seems pretty appropriate for these two people who wrestle with God about their actual calling and and what they've been called to do and how they discern the voice of God. I think what's so interesting about that John passage is that the disciples, there's the beginning part with John, but I would, if I were preaching this, I would probably just skip that considering the baptism of the Lord is next year. Uh, It it was the week before. Um, So these disciples are looking for something and they're looking for like this sure sign. And they have a sense of like what, when the Messiah comes, it's going to come and it's going to be really noticeable. And they see Jesus and they don't actually know whether or not he's the Messiah. They call him rabbi. 
and they ask him, are you the one who is to come? And he says, oh, well, come and see. And it's a, a kind of a very Jesus thing to say, which is to say that, like, you can't have assurance at the outset that you're called for any one thing. Like, I, no one has total assurance. Um, and I think there was a part of me that was kind of like, the Roman Catholic Church, which tends to be top-down, right, where there is sort of executive power in one place where people are allowed to make decisions on behalf of large groups of people. The, the conclave of cardinals is actually a fairly democratic process by which the, the affirmation of one particular human being is affirmed by all these other human beings. And when you think about calling, it's not just that Christ has called you, it's that the other people affirm it over time. And, um, and so when Jesus says, come and see, I'm interested to think about like, okay, so what does it mean for him to see, come and see? Is it come and see what? Come and see all the things that God is doing? Come and see these other disciples who have already started hanging out with Jesus? Come and see what you are capable of? There's lots to do with that particular uh, idea that was stirring in my mind as I was watching this movie. Um, I think I have some thoughts for Psalm 40, but for you, what did you see? I mean, I, I do think vocation is the way that connects this film to most of these texts. And you see that show up as well in the, um, in both the, the Paul, the, the Corinthians and in the Isaiah Oracle that both start with these very strong declarations of, um, of vocation, of calling into the speaking on behalf of God in this moment. You have Isaiah is the Lord called me before I was born while is while I was in my mother's womb. He named me. And you have Paul who as with most of his letters begins this letter to the Corinthians by naming that he was called to be an apostle. Uh, there's, there's kind of a, there's a declaration of authority that opens both of these moments of witness that, that feels very, that almost has some braggadocio that goes with it. It's like, listen to me, I have, I, I have standing, and I'm uh -huh. going to tell you the standing that I have so that the rest of this can land. And I find that a very interesting contrast in some sense with what creates standing and authority in the two popes is kind of the, on, on the outside, it is the, the weight of institution, right? You, it's black smoke or it's white smoke. You get the white smoke, mm -hmm. which creates standing and authority. He goes out on the balcony and all the crowds are there. The, 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 the circus is there to create authority so that now he can speak on behalf of the papacy and of the church and by extension on behalf of God. And behind the scenes, you see him deeply wrestling. Um, in Benedict's case, you know, I've, God used to speak to me and now he doesn't. The, the, the smoke and the candle went down. What does that mean? Uh, there's this, the, the, this, this behind the curtain wrestling with, uh, what, what happens if I, I no longer have the authority, mm -hmm. the, the theological authority that this moment and the job that I have and the context that I have it in kind of calls on me to have i think that's really fascinating and 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 a 
there may be a way in there to kind of naming, okay, look, Paul and Isaiah make vocation look really simple in these texts, but it's not. It's much more complicated than just like, look, God called me to do a thing, so I'm going to do it. It's behind the scenes, we wrestle. We all do. And, and I think being able to name that and, and lean into it a little bit to help folks realize that this is a, this is a, this is a lifelong quest and it's it, the, the wrestling never stops. And I, I love Paul and I love Isaiah both, but they're, 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 they're making something look a lot simpler than it really is. Yeah, and then I think that there's some interesting contrast between the two, between Isaiah's vision that I was, uh, that this call came before my birth. And then Paul, at least according to the story of Paul, the classic story of Paul, sure. like the, the call to be an apostle came late, relatively late in life right sure. and i think I, I like that there's some contrast there which is you know you get the sense that like benedict has had this call to be pope for a very long time right and you get the sense that francis has, has felt this deep inadequacy for ever and ever and um and both of them are coming to terms with with what that means so if you've had this call for a very long time since before you were born what happens when it goes away? And then if you've never had this call and you felt a deep inadequacy, what happens when you feel it too? I mean, that's terrifying, right? Like, I just wonder if Paul, like when he's like to be an apostle, but I like, no, <laughs> I'm good. Like I've, I messed this up big time. And, and I think these two, these two figures have some interesting parallels with the, uh, um, with the two figures in the movie too. Um, the Psalm 40 passage was really interesting to me, too, because I think it, I waited patiently for the Lord is how it began. Um, a little bit like Isaiah and Paul, like it's it's that's it's an easy way of saying like, and the Lord inclined and heard my call. Right. right um, sure. But in most of my life, patience wasn't something I had. It was something that was required. Right. Like it. It. it was pressed into my life. Like I had, I had a degree of powerlessness that I couldn't deal with. And so the only option left was to wait. And so I wonder if that sort of, I waited patiently for the Lord is, is to a way to say like, this is what we always say, even when we're desperately impatient as we wait. And I, I sense that in the sort of, in the figure of Benedict as he's, waiting for God to come back to him and to like make himself known to him. And then he says later in the movie, I was waiting, I was waiting. And then you showed up and I realized to my great dismay and <laughs> that the voice of God was the voice of Bergoglio. Um, and now I'm like, I, and I, I wonder how we can consider waiting nowadays when we don't have when it feels like we're running out of time, when things feel very, very urgent. I was reading something recently and someone quoted uh, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, who says like, um, like part of the Christian life is to wait on the slow work of God. Uh, so it's, and that's hard. That's very hard for me is to try and figure out, okay, so what is the slow work of God? Like, and I think we ought to consider like God waits on us a lot. Yeah. 
why is it so hard for us to wait on God? Yeah, this is um this is one of those texts. I'm sure you've got them. I I, I wrote my most like substantial like advanced Hebrew exegesis paper in seminary on Psalm 40, and then I preached it in my senior seminary sermon. And so, like, there was a couple of years there where all I did was think about this psalm, or at least it feels that oh, really? way. And so it's like one of those that, like, it's very hard to go back to uh, and, and with any kind of dispassionate or, like, or fresh eyes in any way. But, yeah. but I will say that, um, yeah, I think all that is right. I also think that this psalmist um, it, it is, is a worship leader in his own right or her own okay. right. Um, I have told the glad news of deliverance and the great congregation this um, in, in verse nine, the psalmist has been in ministry. Oh, the psalmist cool. has been in, yeah. in, in public witness in some shape. I, there's deep Hebrew reasons why I think this psalm has old connections to the Jeremiah tradition. Uh, and, and, and so that congregation could be a space of worship or it could be like a temple court like a, okay. yeah. um, but regardless, this 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 person has done public witness and advocacy, and um, God has not uh, rewarded them, uh, or, or is not taking care of them in return. And so I huh. and and so I think you, I, you can certainly pin that around Benedict's turn in this film, right? Yeah, like I have done, I have done the work that I thought I was supposed to do. Where did you go? Um, yeah, which is, which is which is really interesting. That's really interesting. I think that's a good place to end the conversation. And now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? Well, as all the members of my household will attest, my new uh, kind of warm blanket comfort obsession is uh the bbc reality show the repair shop of which there are two seasons now on netflix have you seen any have you no i haven't uh -uh. okay so i think there are four seasons that exist but a couple of seasons I have now come to america netflix. it looked interesting uh so the repair shop is is not complicated it is uh literally like a repair shop in the British countryside somewhere. It clearly does not exist in real life. It's it they've gathered some different specialty repair folks into a very vintage looking space for the purposes of making a TV show. And people bring in their their old broken family artifacts or kind of community artifacts. It's um the, the pottery dish that we inherited from my grandmother and then the cat knocked it off a shelf and so it shattered. Uh, and I want to, can you repair it? Because of course repairing it doesn't only bring the dish back, it also reconnects us with our grandmother. Or the, you know, mm -hmm. here's, this is the teddy bear that I grew up with from before the war and I want to pass it on to my great granddaughter, but the dog tore off a limb. Can you repair the teddy bear? Uh, it has a little bit of, it has certainly the kind of quiet, peaceful sensibility of like Great British Bake Off. Um, it has right. a little bit of the sensibility of Antiques Roadshow in the sense of like these objects that have these deep stories. Yeah, a lot of Pimp My Ride in it. A little bit, a little bit of Pimp My Ride. Um, but there's <laughs> no, there's there's no like a monetary payoff. It's not like, oh, and the teddy bear, it turns out to be worth $40,000. Let's call Christie's. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not about what, how much is this thing worth or what am I going to do with it? It's like, I need to reconnect with this 
um, with this place in my life. Um, can you help? Uh, it's very gentle. I think is why in anxious times I have like totally glommed on to this thing. <laughs> um, and, but it, in addition to that kind of like the, the reforging of relationships that is run through this, that has this beautiful kind of lovely ethos about it, which is we're not going to throw this stuff away just because it's old and chipped that, yeah. th that we can repair things. Um, I think about the, um, the, um, the, the promise and revelation of a God that mm -hmm. makes all things new. And Brian Blunt plays a little bit with that language in his commentary and talks about the difference between God making all things new and God making all new things. And that the Greek is very clear that this is not a God who throws things away and starts fresh. This is a God who repairs and redeems right. the world as it is. Uh, so by the time this episode dropped, I will almost certainly have already preached on this because I think I'm going to use it this Sunday <laughs> around, around baptism of the Lord and around the ways in which we are um, called into new life that is to say your baptism is a reminder that you are not a throwaway, that you are a repair job. We all are. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I encourage this show, if you just need something that is the opposite of anxious in your life, but I also just think the theology embedded in it is really beautiful. So that's what I've got. That's yeah. What do you got? Uh, so here's another non-anxious show. It's called The Witcher. Have you watched it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not watched it i have reached capacity for like i need my fantasy sci-fi fantasy to be like easy Ugh. and accessible and it just looks too complicated I just oh don't, it's I just so don't. complicated and this is what i love about it this is kind of what i mean i mean so i like i think both of us are are talking about things that help us escape for a <laughs> right? moment sure and you know i think like I'm not going to say The Witcher is a good show. Neither am going to. Neither am I going to say that everyone should watch this show. Um, that said, I was watching The Witcher. I was also walking through Costco and saw a very nice leather-bound encyclopedia of Middle Earth that was probably 800 pages long. <laughs> and you bought and, it. And both of them gave me deep comfort and yeah. i'll say that okay. because i just i appreciate this sort of ridiculous attention to detail as people try and create things especially things like that are fan fantastic in their own way and i find myself I'm, I'm kind of a little bit inundated in my life right now with fantasy stuff um Elliot has wanted to read through some of the Harry Potter stuff, so we're reading that together. I myself am reading this like strange Middle Eastern fantasy novel right now. Um, I was watching The Witcher and I was walking through Costco, and so it just felt like I was. All of these things were sort of coalescing into a, a single experience, which is a deep appreciation for people who like care about, you know, the. The, the minutia of a, of a thing. Um, and I was watching 
this movie and similarly we're finding people who like care about the minutiae of the thing who who want everything to be in its right place and um and that's a it's a very foreign feeling to me like wanting to have all of the the little details in the right place i don't much care about that very much um but at the same time i had a deep appreciation for it and while i was watching the show it was lovely to get sort of lost in it and to like like wonder like where did mouse sack come from right (laughs) the (laughs) dumbest name on the planet but it um it felt comforting and i haven't totally figured out why it feels so comforting except to feel like oh yeah this this is a world where it won't be exhausted easily and and I feel like this world that I'm in right now is exhausting. Like it's exhausting me with all of the things that it sort of asks of me. And at least with The Witcher, like it stirs that little research part of my brain where I'm like, oh, I wonder, I wonder if there's details or clues or different things that you're supposed to find in this. And so, I don't know. I, if you want something tender, I guess go watch repair shop if you want something that's going to sort of like deeply confuse you and you be okay with it because it it doesn't much matter it's 10 minutes before someone's going to kill a monster and you'll be and you'll be right back in track um then you should go watch the witcher (laughs) (laughs) i I mean it's a yeah it's a very strange piece of media It's an interesting one in my continued quest to get us to realize how big of an impact video games have. I mean, The Witcher was a a literary property that came out of Eastern Europe that had not permeated outside of that market at all until The the Witcher became a series of of video games that in its most, I think The Witcher 3 was the most recent one that has had like massive, wide scale, widespread impact through kind of quote unquote hardcore gamers and um in, in the US and and elsewhere. And I think that translation, it's like the narrative work that the that the video game publishers did to bring that story into a broader market has planted the seeds for what uh like a film or television adaptation could be, which is I think a first in some ways. Yeah, it's wild, right? Like that's not generally the trajectory of how media properties work. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. At some point, there will be a room in my head for another fantasy universe, but I think I have to delete one first before I yeah, get it. Yeah. It's enjoyed. I'm done. I'm, I've moved <laughs> past The Witcher. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come back to the show page and discuss how we got it wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Tango with Benedict. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.